We are continuing our new series in the book of Hebrews today. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, and going through chapter 2, verse 4. So Hebrews 1, 5 through 2, 4. Beth is going to read for us this morning. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can follow along. It'll be projected on the screen. Let's give our attention to the scripture. The reading for today is Hebrews 1, 5 through 2, 4. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beth. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask for you to help us as we look at this part of your word this morning. Father, we uh, gather here again, having come out of uh, a week where <clears throat> things happened that we perhaps might not have expected, where life did not go the way we would have hoped, where we've encountered um, the, the fallenness and brokenness of this world and of our own lives in countless ways. And so we, we gather here expecting, God, for you to speak to us words of love and reassurance and grace. So will you please, by your Holy Spirit, work that ministry among us this morning? Will you help us, Jesus, to pay close attention to what we are hearing, that we might not drift away, but that we might by faith stand firm on what you have invited us into, uh, salvation by your grace. So be with us as we spend time together for these next few minutes in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in October 2017, uh, a, USS, uh, a U.S. Navy cruiser called the USS Ashland uh, was sailing 
through the South Pacific Ocean, uh, hundreds of miles south of the coast of Japan. And uh, as they were sailing, they received a distress signal. And, and this distress call came from a woman named Jennifer Apple, who had been on a sailing vessel uh, with her friend Tasha. And they were calling this USS vessel from a, a Taiwanese fishing ship that they had seen in the open sea and swam to for help. Six months earlier, Apple and Tasha, her friend, had set sail out of Hawaii on their 50-foot boat with plans to take an 18-day sailing journey from Hawaii to Tahiti. They had packed enough food for a couple of months in the boat. They had just the two of them and their two dogs with them. Of course, you have to take a dog on a sailing journey through the South Pacific. Makes a ton of sense, right? And uh, three days into the trip, disaster struck. A big storm with 50 to 70 mile an hour winds hit them and their ship's engine was flooded. One of their cell phones washed overboard in the storm. With them, they had also taken a ham radio, two GPS units, a weather satellite, and a radio phone, none of which they could get to operate correctly after the storm. Further, the mast and the sails were so damaged that they couldn't generate adequate wind power to keep the ship on course. However, the two ladies, they didn't realize this immediately after the storm. They didn't know the extent of the damage, and so unknowingly, they began to drift. They began to drift off course, and, and once they realized that they were off course, it was too late for either of them to do anything about it. They were relatively novice sailors. The women drifted aimlessly in the South Pacific for six months. For six months, they sent out distress calls with their one remaining cell phone for 98 consecutive days without an answer. And when the Taiwanese fishing boat found them, they were over a thousand miles off course. Let that be a lesson to you. Be afraid of the ocean. Right? <laughs> Novice sailors should not probably take a voyage longer than a few days in the South Pacific. All experienced sailors know there's always a danger in drifting. There's a danger in drifting. The primary danger in drifting is that you almost never realize that that's what's happening until it's too late. That's what I want us to focus our attention on this morning. We move into the second week of this study in Hebrews. Last week, we saw that the author opens the letter by, by kind of condensing, right, the heart of his message into those first three verses. And the message of Hebrews is this. Jesus is God's best and final word. Jesus is God's best and final word, and we should listen to him. Remember, uh, this book was written to urban Jewish Christians, Jews who had converted to Christianity in the middle of the first century, a few years after Jesus had been raised from the dead. From the dead. And, and these Christians, they were facing struggles. They were facing hardship. One thing I want to tell you that we didn't talk about last week uh, that we need to add for background understanding is that one of the primary struggles that these initial readers were facing was the temptation to return to the ways of Judaism. The temptation to return to what theologians call the old covenants. These Christians were finding it difficult to believe and to live in the reality that Jesus is in fact better. He's better than the old way of doing things. They were in danger of drifting away. 
which is a large part of why the author wrote this letter. They were drifting back to old ways, to old customs, to old beliefs, and and possibly leaving their faith behind. So the author spends a ton of time comparing Jesus and the new covenant he brings to the old covenant, and his conclusion is always what he had said in verse 4, that Jesus is superior. There's a lot of theology about that in Hebrews. Jesus is better. But the theology always has a very practical aim. And the practical aim is this, to encourage us not to drift away, not to neglect Jesus. As verse 1 of chapter 2 says, we should pay attention. It's possible for us to drift away. Just like those old Hebrew Christians potentially drifted away, it's possible for us to lose sight of who Jesus is. It's possible for us to neglect Jesus and Jesus' kingdom in this world. We'll see that again and again in Hebrews. We can't just view these warnings that Hebrews gives as theoretical, as things that can't apply to our lives. No, they're real. They're real warnings for us today. So we should listen. We should listen to the kind word of Jesus to us. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest you drift away. Let's look at these verses in two parts, okay? We're gonna see first a needed comparison, and then second, a necessary conclusion. A needed comparison, a necessary conclusion. So first, a needed comparison. As we saw last week, the first three or four verses there teach that the Jesus, he's God's unique and supreme word. He's the perfect picture of what the real God's like. He's the one who's made purification for our sins, something we could never do for ourselves through his sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus is the one who has been raised from death. He's ascended into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of the reigning king, his father. And he's received, Hebrews tells us, the name that is above all names. So that's what verses one, two, and three are about. And then in verse four, we read the author concluding his introductory comments by saying, Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he spends the next nine verses, the rest of chapter one, marshalling a case, largely from the Old Testament, that Jesus the Son is superior to angelic beings. He, if you'll look, you, it's very clear. He, he compares Jesus and angels and again finds Jesus is better. Verse seven, angels are winds and ministers of flame of fire, but... On the, of the, on the contrary, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, etc., 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 etc. He compares Jesus to angels repeatedly and says that Jesus is the only one of whom God says he is my Son. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater than any angel could, could ever be. He, he summarizes it in verse 14. Angels are just ministering spirits. Sit out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So the author goes into a lot of detail and spends a lot of time saying Jesus is better than angels. And listen, that's kind of weird to us, isn't it? I mean, it's almost kind of anticlimactic. The author said, Jesus died for sin. He's made purification. Jesus made the world and upholds everything by the word of his power. Jesus is exactly the image of the real God. And above all else, Jesus is better than angels. And we're kind of like, duh. 
Yeah, we knew that already. And the reason that strikes us is a little weird, right? The reason it strikes us as, as a bit anticlimactic is because this is one of those places in the Bible where the issues the original audience was facing are just frankly different than the issues that we, by and large, face today. This is one of those places where the Bible just seems, it just seems foreign to us. It's okay to admit that. I bet some of you are thinking, you know, I've got a lot of problems, a lot of issues, but the temptation to worship angels over Jesus doesn't make the top ten. Doesn't make the top ten list of issues in Luke's life. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, the human tendencies that lay beneath the concerns this original audience faced are the exact same tendencies we still have today. Just dressed up in a little bit more modern Garb. So stay with me as I explain this. What are we to make of these angels? What's the deal with the angels? Why so much attention to angels here? Well, remember, okay, these Jewish Christians that the author's writing to were being tempted to, to go back to the old covenant, to the Jewish way of doing things. That's how their potential drifting was manifesting itself. And for a first century Jewish person, angels were just really important. They were a big deal. Why? Because angels, it was established Jewish theology at the time, angels mediated in some way the old covenant. So when God gave the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses up on Mount Sinai, the scriptures tell us in multiple places in the Old Testament that somehow that law giving was given through angels. Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, says something about this. In Galatians 3, Paul writes this, The law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So, a first century Jewish person loved Torah. Their life revolved around God's law. And so because angels were seen as being significant in the giving of the law for a Jewish person in the first century, the original audience to the Hebrews, angels were a big deal. It was an important theological topic. Uh, that's, that's the point. It, it's hard for most of us, I think. Maybe all of us. It's, it's hard for maybe all of us to understand, to really put ourselves in the shoes of what it would have been like for a first century Jewish person to convert to Christianity. And the reason it's hard is because most of us have not left a completely foreign religion and culture in order to become Christians. Uh, some of you might have, but I don't think many of us have. But maybe you've known someone who's had that experience. Uh, when I was a seminary student in Philadelphia, uh, I had a number of seminary colleagues who were from Africa. And, and multiple of them had grown up with their family ancestral religions, with really uh, spirit worship and divination and shamanism and all that stuff, and had been converted radically out of that way of life into Christianity. Now, there's a lot I could say about that, but one of the things that is very clear when you encounter someone who's come out of that kind of world is the questions that they ask are often different from the questions you ask as an American, American Christian. And the way they read the Bible is often different from the way they read the Bible. Sometimes they're going to be really interested in topics that we have no resonance with. That, that's kind of what it's like for these first century Jewish people who had become Christians. So the author, understanding their struggle, compares Jesus to angels again and again and again and concludes Jesus is superior. 
He says, hey, angels are, they're just ministering spirits. They're real. We're two thumbs up on angels. We're pro-angel. But they're not Jesus. They're not central. They're not the son. No angel has ever been told by God, you're my only son. Only to Jesus has he said that. So what are we supposed to do with this? If all of Scripture is profitable, and if all of Scripture is intended to be helpful for us, what are we supposed to do with this bit about Jesus being better than angels? Remember a moment ago, uh, I said that although we face issues different from the issues they faced, uh, underneath we have similar tendencies. Here's what I mean. Uh, One way we can drift away from Jesus is very subtle. One way we can drift away from Jesus is very subtle. It's by, it's by paying so much attention to biblical doctrine that we forget the main point of the Bible. It's possible for us to do that. To pay so much attention, to obsess so much over biblical realities that we lose the main focal point of the Bible itself. That's what this original audience was doing. Angels, they're a Bible reality. There is a doctrine of angels. Angelology exists, right? Um, But they're not the main point. Jesus is the main message. Jesus is the main point. And that's just not me saying that. Jesus himself says, I'm the main point. After he's been raised from the dead. At the very end of Luke's gospel, he's hanging out with his disciples and he's sort of giving them a crash course in what the Bible's about. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 46, he says, everything that you read in the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms and and the stories, they're all about me. They're all about me. Jesus is the main point. But it's possible for us to forget that because we're so focused on other important but not essential biblical doctrines. Uh, What does that look like for us? You know, there's a million versions of this. We drift away from paying attention to Jesus as he reveals himself in the scriptures because we're more interested in hearing about other biblical topics and sometimes we subtly and maybe even unintentionally use those biblical topics and our knowledge of them as a shield from really encountering Jesus. That might look like, uh, well, you guys probably have experienced this if you've been around church for a while. It, it's, it's very subtle and it's very dangerous. And one of the reasons it's so dangerous is because it has the initial impression of maturity. It has the initial guise of maturity, but it's immaturity. You've probably been around this. You may be like this. You always want to talk about the end times. By the way, pastors love it when you send them emails about the end times, but elders like it even more. So email your elders. They'd love to hear from you and get into a long email debate about the end times with you. Some of you love talking about the end times. Or, or tongues, you know, what's the deal with spiritual gifts? Or Calvinism, now I'm really ticking some of you off. Or church-state relations, they're your angelology. But you don't ever want to talk about how Jesus' love is transforming your heart. That's what the author is saying. Jesus is the point. Don't drift away from that. I love how one commentator puts it, and this guy's like a top-shelf commentator. He's a really good, and he just brings this right down to the bottom shelf for us. Listen to what he says. What we must ask is this. What is it in the Christian faith that excites you? 
Today, there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous time and energy into issues, abortion, pornography, homeschooling, economic justice, women's ordination for or against, a certain type of worship. We could go on and on and on and on and on, right? The list varies. Not for a moment, he writes, am I suggesting that we should not think about such matters or throw our weight behind some of them, but when such matters devour our time and attention, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? One of the ways we drift away is by not confessing the centrality of the gospel in what gets us excited about being a Christian, about theology, about the scripture. I think that's one application for us from the end of Hebrews chapter 1. And and it really tees up the second point quite well, I think. The second thing the Hebrews author does is give us a, a necessary conclusion. If Jesus is superior to everything and everyone which he's gone at great lengths to prove in chapter 1. If Jesus is the main point of what we're doing here, verse 1, chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Or to put it a little bit differently, how he says it in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect, if we neglect such a great salvation? What's the necessary conclusion? Don't neglect Jesus or you will drift away. Don't neglect Jesus, or you will drift away. There's not a single command in the entire first chapter of Hebrews. Nothing. Not a single order from God to us. But then in verse 1 of chapter 2, that first command comes. Pay attention. Do you see? All the theology about the greatness of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus has a practical point. Pay attention to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Don't neglect Jesus. One of my favorite um, evangelistic training courses to go through with my non-Christian friends is, is called Christianity Explored. It comes out of England, and the guy who leads it is this English guy named Rico Tice, and he explains the gospel very wonderfully in this course and, and concludes by saying this. If you hear the gospel and it's not, in your estimation, the best news you've ever heard, you can be certain you haven't understood it. If you hear the gospel and it's not the best thing you've ever heard, you can be certain you've misunderstood it. I wonder if when you hear the gospel, that's what you think. Jesus Christ today speaks to us through this passage. By his spirit, he asks, are we neglecting him? Are we neglecting Jesus even while professing faith in Jesus? And how do we neglect Jesus? We've already seen, I think, one of the ways we can lose the forest for the theological trees and, and drift away. We can use theology and doctrine to avoid encountering Jesus. I think there's a couple of other ways. I want to close by giving you two and asking you to consider if you're drifting away, if you're neglecting Christ. One way I think many of us neglect Jesus is just because we're, we're accustomed to him. We're just used to Jesus. We're overly familiar with Jesus. Maybe you feel that way. You feel like you've never known a day where Jesus wasn't your Savior. And in so many ways, that is such an asset for your spiritual encounters with him and your your ongoing growth. But the danger is that you can just kind of be, "Eh, yeah, I know Jesus. 
That's a danger. It's one way we can neglect him. I had a friend point me this week to uh, an episode of Antique Roadshow. You guys know that show. Uh, It was like uh, Pawn Stars before Pawn Stars existed, right? So Antique Roadshow uh, is this show where these auctioneers go around and they, they come and receive these old trinkets and old antiques and they estimate their value. And this episode I'd never seen before. This old guy brings in this old kind of raggedy looking striped Indian blanket. And um, the appraiser sees this blanket, and you can almost kind of watch the appraiser's eyes, whoa, open really wide. And, and he looks at this guy, this old guy, is just very simple, very, um, very unassuming, and, and he says, hey, what do you know about this, about this blanket? And the old man who brought it says, oh, not, you know, not much. It's been in my family for generations. It was given to my grandmother by her mother, and it's just sort of passed down, and, and we've kept kept it, and I, you know, I, I saw you guys were in town, and I thought I'd just, just kind of bring it by and see if it has any value. And, and the appraiser says, have you ever had this blanket looked at? Have you ever had this blanket appraised? And he says, no, not that I know of. And, and the tension's already kind of building. And, and then the appraiser says, well, Ted, this guy's name is Ted, uh, did you notice that when you showed me this blanket, I, I kind of stopped breathing for a minute? <laughs> and Ted starts nodding. He's like, I did notice that. And, and uh, then he says, are you a wealthy man, Ted? And Ted's like, well, no, my family's from a farming community, and we've, you know, it's just exactly what you would expect. If you Google this and you see Ted, you're like, no, Ted is not a wealthy man. He's from a farming family, Midwestern, almost certainly, you know. And uh, he's like, you're not a wealthy man? Okay, well, here's what this is. He says, this is a Navajo Ute chief blanket, and, and it's in almost perfect condition. Then he goes into the de- details. He says, you notice that this is so finely woven that it's like silk, and it's dyed with indigo, and it was very valuable at the time. It was made in like the 1840s, and Ted's like, oh, I didn't have a clue, and, and then the guy says, on a really, really bad day at auction, this blanket is going to go for about $350,000. But on a normal day at auction, this blanket is at minimum half a million. And Ted's like, what? What? I had no idea. It was just sitting on the back of my chair. And the the guy says, Ted, what you have on the back of your chair is a national treasure. And Ted's just, you know, what? What? I couldn't. YouTube, and it's awesome. It's a great, great thing to watch. You know what Hebrews is saying? Don't do that with the Son of God. That's a danger. Is Jesus like just a blanket hanging on the back of your chair? Oh, and on your wall, you've probably got like Joshua twenty four sixteen up there, Joshua 1, 8, and this house is the Lord's house, but it's just kind of meh, normal. Don't do that. That's, that's a way we neglect Jesus. It's a big danger for us. We come here each week. It's familiar. You kind of even forget we meet in a gym sometimes, right? You, you, you see some friends, you, you catch up, you sing some songs. You come to the table like we do every week. We just sort of get familiar with our spiritual practices and with our relationship with God. It's it's like just an old blanket on a chair. And we forget that it's the biggest treasure in the whole house. Jesus Jesus asks us to see him and, and to listen to him. Is Jesus just kind of familiar to you? Have you forgotten who he is? Will you ask the Spirit to, to just give you by his grace, a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ today? I mean, to really hear Jesus through the scriptures. One thing I love about being around new Christians, if you're a new Christian, I want to hang out with you. If you've been a Christian for a long time, eh, 
I guess I will. One of the things I love being around new Christians is that they haven't forgotten what it's like to be saved. They haven't forgotten. <laughs> like, the Bible's unbelievable. Like, I used to be like dead in sin, and I didn't have a clue what my life was about. I was walking around in the darkness, and now I'm alive, and I'm in the light, and my life has a purpose, and there's a God who loves me, and he gave me his son. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is true. It's amazing. The reason that we love that is because we have a tendency to neglect Jesus by just being overly familiar with him. If that's the case with you, ask Jesus to give you a fresh encounter with him today. Another way, last thing I'll say, that we maybe neglect Jesus, that we aren't paying attention to him, is, well, when we don't really consider the stakes. Look, look at what the Hebrews author says, verse 2 and verse 3. And this is a classic argument that the Bible does a lot. It's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Verse 2. Uh, since the message declared by angels, that's the law, Old Testament, as we saw a minute ago, since it proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay, pause. What he's saying there is that the Old Testament is valid and binding. It's not as great as the New Testament because it's not as clear and it's not as full, but it's still true. And if you disregarded the Old Testament, there was a consequence for that, right? Verse 3, how then shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that was declared to us by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard? The author's saying, if people who heard the Old Testament law, which was valid and good and reliable, and then disobeyed it were judged justly, then what's going to happen to people who hear the superior message of the gospel? The new covenant of the blood of Jesus shed for sin and the resurrection of Jesus, and then they neglect it and ignore it and don't make it central. Well, he leaves you to conclude what will happen. But what are the stakes? They're eternal. Eternal life and eternal death are on the line here. You listening to Jesus has monumental implications for your own future. There are eternal consequences for your faithfulness to Jesus' word or your faithlessness to Jesus' word. And, and I just want to ask, do you really believe that? We have a tendency, I think, to, to only pay attention to the now and to disregard eternity. I always think about uh, Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who died in South America. His, his most famous quote was that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. And belief in that truth formed Jim Elliot's life. It formed his values. It formed his identity. And, and Jesus asks for the truth of the gospel to form our lives in a similar way. So is that happening with you? Or are we neglecting Jesus? If these are ways we can neglect him, if these are ways we can drift... Let me just close by this. What does it look like to pay attention? What's the positive side? How do we not drift? How do we not neglect? Well, I think verse 3 and verse 4 hint at it. We remember. That's what it means to exercise faith. We remember by faith our own salvation. We remember what we have heard. We, we ask God to give us a deep awareness of our own sinfulness and shortcomings and an even deeper awareness of the depth of God's forgiving love and mercy in the gospel. We don't forget what it's like to be saved. We don't forget how amazing it is. That is what anchors us. Faith in God's grace 
Remembering the reality that Jesus Christ has indeed finished his work of saving sinners like me, he's worth listening to. So don't drift. Anchor yourselves to Jesus. Pay attention. In a minute, we're going to sing a, a hymn that we love here, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. And my favorite of the, the verses is verse 3. Let me close by reading it, and we'll sing it here in a minute. Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. Through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, O oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This, my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Hold fast to the anchor. Don't drift. Let's pray.